again, as I've told you numerous times, I'm studying this so differently than I have in the past, not trying to focus so largely on the symbolism, but actually what the revelation means to us right now. What does God want us to know about where we are from this revelation? So I, as I left the seven churches, which were very easy to understand and consider to what I would find when I flipped over to Revelations 4 and 5, I just didn't know really where it would go. I really thought I could cover all of Revelation 4 tonight, but as I got to study and it just covered five verses and, and I was, and, and that's, that's six or seven pages of notes. So y'all hang on. Just so amazing to look at the scripture and, and consider it again from a different perspective because these two chapters, I had the heading that I gave to these two chapters are scenes at the throne. Because for two chapters, we're, we get a glimpse into the throne room of God. And especially in chapter four. Chapter four is one that uh, kind of caught me off guard. Because in the first vision, you know, as we've studied over the last several weeks, we see Jesus, we see Christ, the Son of Man, and he's revealed standing in the middle of these seven churches. And he will always be in that place. We will never find him where he's not standing in the middle of these churches. I kept wrestling, as you heard me teaching this, with the typical teaching that each of these churches represents a stage in the development of the church, with the church at Laodicea best picturing what's happening in the church today. But I kept reminding myself and reminding you week by week that the instruction to John was to make sure that every church got every letter. Again, I just couldn't get settled on the fact that this was just a representation of different time periods, which would cause us, by the nature of teaching that way, to discount all of them except the last one, to almost count those earlier ones as not being relevant. But what I realized in, as I flipped the page, leaving this vision, was that each of those churches represents seven aspects of one church not one aspect per church. These are seven aspects of one church. That within a church's life, these are going to occur. You're going to go through those seasons of obedience and you're also going to face the times when it shifts and all of a sudden you're dealing with, seems like nothing, like in Laodicea, you're dealing with the opinions of men rather than the revelation of God. So you'll find all seven churches and the messages to all seven churches in the life of one church. And I would venture to say, if we, if we would go back and study and look just a little bit, that we would find each one of those teachings within this church, that we would find that truth relevant here. Because this church has been through many ebbs and flows of different things and hurt and blessing and hurt and blessing. Different things that have, that have occurred. Uh, Helen brought a picture uh, that was taken outside of the building that now sits over by the Little League ballpark, the Iglesia de Fe building. It was set here. The congregation was all standing outside, kind of facing to the northwest. They had just given the pastor a new car. Yep, 1946, they'd bought him a new car and had presented it to him on that day. I'm not hinting, I'm not suggesting, but... Uh, Probably seven, eight hundred dollars. <laughs> Might find that one if you looked hard enough. <laughs> that went exactly where I expected. Yeah. <laughs> and 
no, no. Yeah. Those aspects will always be present in the church until we allow God to do something new. Till God, we allow by our trust, by our faith, to let God do something new. It is to me the, the same scripture that I shared with you on Sunday morning. As Paul had identified himself so clearly as the Pharisee of the Pharisees, that he had prospered more than his peers in the Jews' religion, and that he was doing these things because he had this identity. He knew who he was, he knew what he was about, but when you stop and realize there was nothing about that life that was true, but when it pleased God, and the moment that everything dynamically changed was when not only God chose him, but Paul chose to let God reveal his son in him. What's the new thing that God always wants to do? Reveal his son in us. And the new thing will always be when we come to that place of not only surrender, but faith to say, God, I want you to reveal your son in us. We surrender our agendas, our plans, our desires, and say, God, I have one that every day in every way that you choose that you would reveal your son in me. Because all the things that we used to be, all the history that we could point to, that's somebody else's story, that's somebody else's life. The one that is true for us is the one that God speaks. And when we hear it and live it in obedience, then we will experience that something new. I can tell you for myself, I know one testimony personally, I observe many, but I know one, and that when my life changed drastically, and I don't mean to compare myself to Paul, but I recognize that, that what God's great desire for me was, was that people could see, would look at me and see him. Because everything about my life changed in that moment where I realized I'd worked so hard to perform and all God wanted was for me to let him be Lord so that I would obey. And by that obedience, he could do what my desire was, what his desire for me was, and that, that others could see Christ when they looked at me. It changed when I realized that Christ could live in us. So there is, as could be expected, about a great deal of conversation about what's going on as we flip the page into chapter four, leaving behind the seven churches and the first revelation. But I believe as, as I was reading, as I told you from the beginning, I'm reading a book by Watchman Nee, and it's, that's partially the guide for this study. If you read the book, you probably wouldn't necessarily pick out is coming from there, but he's the one that really inspired me to read this differently. Revelation 4.1 begins like this. I'll read all of it in just a second. But after this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as if it were a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither, and I will show you the things which must be hereafter. So most then, at that moment, take Revelation 4 and say, okay, everything after this is still stuff yet to come. I don't believe that. I read it and that's not at all what I get. I believe that God invited, in this revelation, invited for John to step into the throne room and take this look and say, from here, I'm going to show you the things to come. But immediately what John begins to describe is not the things yet to come. He begins to describe the throne room that he was invited to. I believe that this message in Revelation 4, beginning with verse 1, especially with verse two, is what the throne room looks like today and every day. I don't think this is yet to come. I think he's giving us a glimpse into what the throne room of God looks like right now. Now five is a little bit different, but Revelation four 
I think we need to approach it to understand what the revelation for, for us right now is, is if we consider this as just stuff in the future, then we will discount what he wants us to see. But when, in, in verse two, when it says, and immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne room was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. What he's describing is what he walked into, what he entered into. And I think he's, he's saying the promise was step in here and I'll show you the things to come. And he records those. But the first description is what he saw when he entered the throne room. And I think that that's going to be particularly relevant because that throne room becomes the source of everything here. We're tied critically. What's happening in that throne room right now? If we dismiss it, we're going to miss something because that throne room is designed for us to take a glimpse into so that we'll understand who's on that throne so that we'll understand who is on the throne of our hearts, who is on the throne of our lives right now. It's a, I don't, it, it has so much relevance to who you and I are right now. So I don't think he's going to show us just the hereafter. I think he's showing us the throne room here and now. So let's go to Revelation 4. I'll, I'll start over again with verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither and I will show you these things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the spirit. I wish we would lock into some of these words and just realize that to enter into what God has for us, we have to first enter into the spirit. Behold, there was a throne set in heaven and one set on the throne and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardin stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Lock in who's here. Who's in this throne room? Because we have the one that's sitting on the throne. We have here the seven spirits, which is the Holy Spirit. We have the elders and we have each of these things that are unfolding in front of our eyes about what the throne room of God looks like right now. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal in the midst of the throne and around about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the four beasts were like a lion and the second beast was like a calf and the third beast had a face as a man. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him. And they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. So the scene just begins to build. Now here are these beings. And we'll understand this better next week when we go a little bit further. But they never stopped. Never stopped singing, never stopped praising, never stopped acknowledging who he was, the one who was and is and is to come. And when these beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, which who lives forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that live forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. We sing that song from that verse, that thou art worthy. So there is the picture of what's transpiring in the throne room. 
So this is the scene. So let's understand to the best we can what is relevant to us today. And again, I'm only going to cover the first four verses and part of verse five. So the second vision also begins with Christ. The first vision did, Christ was in the middle of the seven churches. Here we find Christ, this time he's not sitting in the midst of the churches. We see him as the exalted Lamb of God sitting on the throne and unfolding the purposes of God to humanity. This is the place that he holds. What's church supposed to be? It's supposed to be. What are our lives supposed to be? They're supposed to be the expression of what he's doing on that throne right now. You know, remember Sunday morning that we have this life. I gave that illustration from the movie, The Natural, and Glenn Close saying, we first have the life we, we learned with, and then we have the life that we lived with after that. The connotation for in the movie is that we, we made some mistakes here, and now we're just having to live with them. That's not true for you and I as Christians. For us is, yes, we, had, we made these mistakes, but because of the reality that we have with God, we're being remade into his image and we don't have to live with the consequences of this former life because he's paid a price to set us free from those. Where did the redemptive work originate? It originated in this throne room. Where did the plan of unfolding this story of Jesus Christ, where did that plan originate? It originated in this throne room. Where did it originate that we would be given the Holy Spirit so that this life that, we're, that God calls us to, this life after, would reveal his son? Where did that originate? It originated in the throne room. So we're watching here this glimpse of Jesus sitting in, on this throne, Christ on this throne, God on this throne, and out of this place is the direction, it's the heart, it's the resolve, it is the provision of God being released from this place. We're all tied to it, and we know so little about it. So the second vision is pivotal to the rest of our understanding of this book of Revelation. So it's why it's important to have this chapter in particular, in, verse, in chapter 5 in particular, while we need to make sure as best we can that it's, it finds the right place in our heart. It's not just because it's to get the symbolism right, but I don't know how to create a relationship if we don't understand the origin, if we don't understand this stuff. Parker preached on this two or three Sunday nights ago when he, when he made the statement that faith grows in intimacy. I don't know if you recognize quickly how profound that is. And while we are people of so little faith, it's because we know God so poorly. Because our typical picture is the more things that happen, the more things we walk through, the greater our faith. The more the trial, the more the test, then the greater our faith. It sounds reasonable, but if I had a rubber band here and I pull it this far, and it's a big rubber band and I pull it this far, and I can understand that I can put faith in it, it's going to hold. If I take it out to here, does my faith in the rubber band go up or down? It goes down. If I take it out to here, it goes down more. If I'm going to take the rubber band out this far, what do I want to know? I want to know the rubber band very well. I want to know that rubber band's history. I want to know how strong it is. I want to know how it was manufactured. I want an intimate understanding of that rubber band because if I'm going to take it out to here, I don't want my experience to be what makes me have confidence and faith in it. I want my intimacy with that rubber band to tell me what I can do. I can test God and test God and find him to be faithful and faithful and faithful. My, that, that's not causing my faith to grow. 
my faith will grow by the fact that I have more intimacy with, the, with God through the Holy Spirit. Again, I shared on that night. My faith in Jan doesn't grow because of the things that we've gone through together. My faith grows in my intimacy with her. That's where I got to know her. That's where the trust comes from. That's where my belief in her comes from. My faith in her comes from. It comes from the intimacy. We need to know. It may seem elusive and it may seem unnecessary, but just like so many other things that we have quit teaching within the Christian church, that, that when, I, when I come back across them, you know, as we've talked a lot about the problem with Christianity today is that we, we use Jesus as an add-on to our life. We have our life. We know what we're doing. I'm, I'm this or I'm this, and I have my life going, and, but I, I need the Savior so that I can go to heaven. I need, I need him to come help me. I need him to come comfort me. I need him to come love me, to, to show me compassion and understanding. I need him to do those things so we kind of tack him on to our life, hoping that he will help us in the life that we have. And God's saying, that's not my teaching. My teaching is I'll only take you one way, and that's if you meet my standard. And my standard is this high. So what will cause us to give up on ourselves to recognize that I will never meet that standard of righteousness that God expects? What does that cause us to do? It causes us to give up so that we will actually recognize that if I'm, only, if I'm ever going to meet that standard, it's because I die so that Christ can live in me so that I can present his righteousness and meet the standard. I have to die. We don't talk much about the priesthood of the believers anymore and, the, and what that means to be a priest before God. But we also don't talk much about the origin of where these things are coming from. We don't know much. We don't have much of a picture of the throne room of God. This is where our Savior is. This is the relationship that he has with his Father. This is where the work of the Holy Spirit originates and where it touches our lives personally. If you're hearing something from God, if he whispers something to you, if he gives you a revelation, if he gives you a vision, if he gives you a picture, where did it come from? It came from this throne room. This is the originating place. So we need to look, as we look at symbolism and we look at where this takes us, we need to understand a little bit about what the picture is. And what we will find is that we'll look, if we look at symbolism, we have to find the truth of it in the rest of the other 65 books. Because somewhere within those, he has told us the truth about this. So the splendor of this vision is a powerful presentation of the sovereignty of God. And I wrote this just in the notes as I was writing the relevant truth as I come to them. The modern Christian cares little about the sovereignty of God. You believe that? What does it mean for God to be the sovereign? What does that make him? What word do we more typically use? Who is the sovereign over Great Britain? Queen Elizabeth. If he is sovereign, what position do we put him in? He's the king. What would we inherently believe should be our relationship to that king? Servant. Do what he says. Obey him. Understand what he's teaching us about this relationship of who we are in relationship to him. Because in that understanding of identity, who he is and who we are, then we will absolutely begin to recognize what he feels powerfully about us and what we in return feel about him. But again, when we relegate God to something extra, then we're not saying you're king. You're my assistant. You're not sovereign. So the sovereignty of God doesn't matter much to the modern Christian world because I can promise you most of what the modern Christian world is doing has little to do with the plan of God that's originating from this throne room. Most of what's happening in, in Christian churches has to do with the popularity of the pastor 
how successful we want to look in our determination to go out and help people. It's not his plan that we go out and help people. That's going to happen as a natural result of my relationship with him. If I don't pursue that, I can't do this well. I can't reach to help my brother on my left and on, on my right if I don't know this first. And that's why we keep messing up so much trying to help and poorly represent the Christian world because we're looking at the world around us, making judgments and assessments that we have no right to make because we're not have the right relationship with the Father. We're not in proper relationship with this throne room. I continued by saying he's simply an add-on to our current active and busy lives. We need him as a helper, but have no intention of surrendering our lives to gain his. What we should immediately recognize that our, our entrance into the throne room via John's record of Jesus' revelation is purpose then and purpose now to bring us into that faith that only intimacy can bring. What's happening here? By John's vision, we're getting to peek into a place that seems like we shouldn't be able to look. You know, as kids, we would do this. We would stand and peek because we didn't know what was going on. So we would stand and look, recognizing probably that we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't be looking. We shouldn't be eavesdropping or we shouldn't be watching. And what John is allowing us to do is to, see, is to see something that we're standing there in awe, almost in disbelief that God would let us see. So our attention is immediately directed to the throne, to him who is on the throne and to those who are before and around the throne. The throne is God's central focus. Everything has a relationship to the throne, on the throne, before the throne, around the throne. Everything in that story, everything in our lives is related to that throne. He makes this statement from the beginning in verse one. After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. So we, we know verse one. Those who are invited to come up there, it says that. Come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. Who is this? Who are those who get access into the throne room? And we're going to see here in a minute that part of these people, these characters that we're seeing around this throne room are us, believers, present already in that throne room. Who are these that get to come up so that they can see? We have a glimpse into that in the previous chapter because in chapter 3, verse 12, when he's talking to these churches, he makes this statement. He calls them in verse 12, I think it's verse 12 in chapter three, to those who overcome. So the ones that get, are going to have access into the throne room, to me at least, are going to be those who overcome because there's so much recognition back in chapter three to these who overcome. So I think it's imperative to us if we have any desire to be in that group, to be of that group, who gets to enter into that throne room, who are truly saved, that we will recognize what it takes for us to overcome. So I looked this up in verse 12. I looked it up in the Strong's Concordance, and it simply says, to be that overcomer, you have to be of Christ. What does that tell us? That we have to have such a relationship with him that our identity is connected so powerfully to his, that we are of his, we are of Christ, victorious, over all his foes, of Christians that hold fast their faith unto death against the power of the foes, the temptations and persecutions. It even talks about one who is arraigned or goes to law to win the case and to maintain one's cause. That's who we are. And again, 
I know that preaching and speaking to the choir here, but this message has to go beyond these four walls. It has, this has to become our message to those around us so that they can truly recognize the difference. Our life is not about going to church. It's not about religion. I, I don't know anything that's crippling the Christian world today more than the church. And that's hard to say. I don't know any greater detriment to Christians. The one church that God has established is religion practiced within churches. Why would I say that? Because someone who is lost is not putting their faith in a religion that they think is holding them solid and in good relationship with God. What was Paul doing? Why was he defending the fact that he was a Pharisee? Why was he out persecuting Christians? Because he was so convinced that his religion was what was making him right with God and God has to erase that and say, it's not your religion. It's not the traditions. It's not the institutionalizing of church so that it looks more like an institution than it does a living body that breathes and flexes and gives and loves and sees miracles and watches and heals and all those things that God has signed for us that he didn't ask us for a moment to do those. How many of us have ever as adults given our children money so that they can go buy us a gift. It's something we do. Why? Because we look at our children and the inability that they have to do anything for us of what's required. If I want something from my child, what am I going to have to do? I'm going to have to give to him what I want back. And we as parents expect that of our children. What happens when we, when we begin to watch them walk? Are we ever disappointed when we're standing there with a smile on our face, trying to encourage them, trying to coax them, and they're holding on to the edge of a table, they're standing there trying to make this decision, and all of a sudden when they turn toward us, and they drop down on their knees, and they just crawl as fast as they can, and, and they didn't walk. How many of us are disappointed in that? No, we pick them up, and we laugh, and we kiss them, and we take them back, and we stand them up there again, and we go back and take our pose. Where did we get that ability to function with our children that way? Where did that originate in us? Where is that coming from? It's coming from him. Do you think he's disappointed in all the times I stumbled? Do you think he's disappointed in all the times I didn't do what he wanted me to do? No, because he understands that with every one of those mistakes I made, I'm growing into the person that, that, that will be able to give him back. Why does he give us faith? Because he wants faith in him back. What would be the likelihood if we could muster enough faith within ourselves if he didn't give it to us as a gift that we could actually have enough faith to put our faith in him if it had to originate in us? How, how satisfied would he be if, with the grace that we extended to others, which ended up being recognized as praise to him, if he didn't give us the grace to give away? You see, whatever he wants from us, he has to give to us. That's a practical reality of the Christian life. He's never going to expect anything of you that he didn't give to you so that you can give back to him something that, that, that looks just like him. He will never ask you a single time to give him anything that he doesn't give you the provision to turn right around to give it back. Pressure's not on us. The pressure's on him. He's God, I'm not. And I don't have to live under the pressure of trying to be. If I'm gonna make any difference in this world, it's gonna be because of what he gave me so that I can offer it back to him. We cannot overcome, that's a reality. We have no powers to overcome unless we enter into a spiritual reality greater than our flesh can comprehend. Think about this. This former life I have spoken of standing over here on the left side, that our history, our experiences, the, the person that I am that you get to see. 
what you're watching in me by, by my opinions and by my words and by my actions, most of the time, what we see of each other is us in the natural, typically reacting like anyone would react. This is what we typically see. Wasn't surprising that Paul wanted to kill Christians. It's a very human thing to do. When, when you're threatened, you strike back. That's a very human thing to do. But over here, because of Christ living in me, what do I now get to put on display? Over here, it's the natural. What is it over here? It's the supernatural. Because when I take that step of faith, when I step into this relationship with him, he's saying, and this is what John's describing, when I take that step into the spirit, I suddenly take on a capacity to do something within my life that was not even tangible or feasible within that one. We saw it miraculously over and over. What did Jesus do every day? He moved beyond the natural because he had taken on the Holy Spirit at his baptism. He'd received the Holy Spirit. And what happened to him was that, that he's still a human being walking and talking on the face of the earth with no more capability or capacity than you and I. Not a single thing did he have that you and I don't have. But what happened when he took on the Holy Spirit? was his capacity as a human left the natural and became supernatural because of the, what he took on, the Spirit of God. We are designed here now to put on the supernatural reality of everything that originates in that throne room. That is a powerful call. And that's why I believe God's giving us this peak to the splendor because we are designed as church. His church, not churches, his church we are designed to put on display the very essence and splendor of God. Look at him. Look at his body. Look at who he chose and see the supernatural reality of God. And we've grown cold to the thought of the supernatural. You want to know how badly we become institutionalized as a church? We find our definition in this life over here only by those things that we can explain, only by those things that we can manage, only by these things that we can control. Only by these things that we're not uncomfortable seeing or uncomfortable doing. That's become how institutionalized the church is. Because we don't want anything of this life that would cause us to be uncomfortable for a moment. We live very guarded. Protecting ourselves from ridicule. Protecting ourselves from embarrassment. Protecting ourselves from uncertainty. What life are you putting on display? This natural one. It's not what we were called to. And he's trying in these verses. He's trying to tell us that very thing. Another relevant truth. We are in the spirit designed and permitted to know the hidden things of God. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Here's the relevant truth. If we don't go beyond our knowledge, we will see the effect of God, but never the cause. Think about that. If we don't go beyond our knowledge, if we sit here as church and have no desire to go beyond what our knowledge can tell us, we will see the effect of God. We will see what he does. And we'll begin to hear testimonies and we'll begin to see what God is capable of doing. But if we don't enter into the spirit, if we don't go beyond as, as John describing that he did, if we don't go beyond, we will never see the cause of the things that God has done. We simply see the effect. I'm far more curious than that. I want to know the cause. I have a curiosity about me that says I have a hard time accepting. I want to know the story behind the story. I want to know what was on God's mind. And it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that by the Spirit, I can know those things that are of God. I can grasp those things that are on his mind. I can understand his will. I can understand the cause more than just seeing the effect. 
but our knowledge has caused us to read this Bible and see the effect that God has had, but we lack, if we don't go into the spirit, we'll never understand the cause of why he's doing what he's doing. That can only be discerned in the spirit. Our Christian world has for far too long seen the effect and misunderstood what they saw because they didn't know the cause. Why wouldn't God just take you the way that you are? Why wouldn't God just accept you with all the error? He loves you the way you are, but he will not accept you the way that you are. Why do we need to know the cause of that? Because there's a great deal of misunderstanding if I say God won't take you the way that you are. That's offensive because in this world, we, we're trying to portray a God that will just, he just loves everybody and he just got his arms open and, and just walk in and he'll love you the way that you are and doesn't care if you sin. We'll put a little grace over that and, and that's become the God that we know. Why do I need to know that his standard is righteousness? Why does this make a difference? Because what happens if we try to hang on to us and, add, and just add a little bit of him? What's the guarantee if that's our effort? What's the world look like trying to do that? Yeah, we look like we're in spiritual poverty. We look broken. We look defeated. We look powerless trying to teach and perpetuate that. What's the cause? Because he understands how powerless we are and and to actually meet the standard of righteousness. He gave us a son, his son, his only begotten son, who was righteous before him so that when we would die and we could let him live in us, then I can take before him the righteousness of his son, hold it before him so that that's what he sees. And I'm I'm no longer in this struggle trying to get this Christian life right. I simply let him do it. And I can enjoy now. The fact that when I stumble in front of him or I get down and crawl because I'm not making the progress that he wants me to make, he's not upset with me. He's enjoying watching because he knows that this process is necessary that we watch a child go through so that someday they'll come to me walking. We've caused him to think that he's so disappointed in us. He's not disappointed in you. He's covered all that. His son died so that all of our disappointment could come before him and he's got it all covered. Not because he's just passing out cheap grace, but because he paid a high price to do it. We're not our own. We've been bought with a price and we read it and we know it to be true. So in order to understand how we are to function as believers in this very material universe, we first have to enter the invisible spiritual universe. We start hearing these kind of words and I know the questions that are coming. Like, Randy, I hear you. I don't know what that's like. That's not describing my Christian life. I'm not asking you to evaluate your Christian life against what I'm saying. I'm asking you to compare your story with the truth that God is revealing. Let me say that again. In order to understand how to function, what this is supposed to really look like, for me to be able to say, like I said to you months ago, that the Christian church has become a place where we walk in and how good the service is depends on how good the music was and how good the message was. And we walk out saying, fine service. The music was great. Pastor Sermon was right on the mark. And we walk out here and say, it's a good day at church. Poor, poor day at church. If what happens here doesn't bring us into the presence of God, we should stay home. It's all about his presence. I don't know how to teach you how to do that. If we have no willingness to enter into a spiritual reality of God, stepping into that spiritual universe that John is talking about. The cause for what is happening around us is always in the spiritual realm. This is what John's trying to tell us. If we want to know 
We have to step into the spiritual realm. John says it. Immediately, John was in the spirit. What gave him access to see what he saw? He didn't see it because he was in his flesh. He didn't see it because his mind was sharp enough to get it or his emotions were connected enough so he could realize it. He entered in because he was in the spirit. Terms that we have just barely understood because we've left them out of our teaching so long. But I'm reading exactly what the Bible says. He was in the spirit. It's important because the realm of the spirit is beyond the natural. The spiritual things are about us because we live and move and have our being in Christ. But the natural man according to the scripture, can never see them. We won't hear the spirit if we're engulfed in all the worldly things which are enticing us right now. Image, being careful, making sure that we have the right presentation of our lives when we truly know inside how broken we are. Another relevant truth that I jotted down. The Holy Spirit has to take us out of the natural realm so we can see with the eyes of the spirit. Each of us has to hear this voice and see this truth from deep within us. Let me read that again. The Holy Spirit has to take us out of the natural realm. The fear I have over here, the anger that I have in my brother, the brokenness I have in the close relationships I have with my life, and I'm, I'm talking to myself in this same moment. I'm speaking to you. Every one of these things, the Holy Spirit says, until you can turn loose of these until you quit bowing by your mind and by your emotions, when you quit verbalizing this garbage that comes out of our mouth as Christians that, well, this is just the way it is. This is just the way that I feel. Then we're going to be stuck right here. And God has no ability by the Holy Spirit to take us into this realm. Not an easy truth, but it is the truth. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven. The first thing John saw when he stepped into this vast spiritual experience, this vast expanse was the throne symbolizes God's kingly authority and his rule. And here it symbolizes God's absolute dominion and power. That's who loves us. That's who speaks blessing over us. That's who's providing the provision for us. That's the one in whom we are placing our trust. The one who has dominion and sits on this throne. I guarantee if any one of us in the spirit would get a glimpse into what John's saying, our lives would be wrecked forever. We would never be able to go back. The little glimpses that we get are hard to go back, but man, if we ever saw it, so it's powerful revelation for us today. It should give us, in good relationship with God, it should give us great peace. Why? Because every promise that he's ever made us originates right here. Can I believe that he would never leave me? He'd never forsake me, yes. I don't care what Satan says. Can I believe that all authority has been given unto me? Yes. Can I believe that he has the power to do in me and through me those things that are pleasing unto him? Yes. Do I believe him when he says, we have read recently in the book of Matthew, when he says to the disciples, go, preach, raise the dead, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Like, ooh, that's a terrifying list. We will never believe those things if we don't get this glimpse of the one who said to go do it. In the center, in the very core of everything that is happening, John says, behold, a throne. I hope that where you stand in your relationship with God, that those words just allow this tremendous peace to wash over you, to recognize that by his grace, I can stumble and he loves me, that I can be broken and he'll heal me, 
I can say something wrong and he forgives me. But I will never know it if I don't enter into this place with him. There's too much here. We're looking into something that we've kind of read past. I had, I'll speak for myself. I've read past this stuff, never stopping to ponder and say, what does that mean right now? When I have, it's, and I started preparing, it's, it's like, I'm thinking I can get through all of, you know, just 11 verses. I mean, I'm in this just a few minutes and I've got so much in my heart, so much in my mind that I'm trying to get written down. And it's like, no, I'm going to have to stop somewhere. So I, I will stop with that. And John said, behold, a throne. After the vision of the churches, that's what God says, I want you to see next. I want you to see the throne room. Several years ago, right before 9-11, we took a tour of the White House. It was impressive, but it was more impressive to me to enter the room in Philadelphia where so much was done, so many conversations, and you realize I've walked into this place of history. I walked into a place where men I didn't know sat down to bring blessing to me and to the people that I know. They paid a great price to do it. I was more impressed to, to stand there in that small hall and realize what had occurred there. Can you imagine anywhere you've ever been, awestruck by what you're seeing and the history that's unfolded there? I looked at, at the Smithsonian, at the flag that flew over Fort McHenry, you know, because it's hard to grasp until you see it because it's really about this, this long as the pews, the flag was that enormous for one purpose. And that is so that any soldier anywhere in the battle could look up and still see the flag and know to keep fighting. Can you imagine that flag compared to Jehovah Nissi, the banner? How awestruck we should be to get a glimpse. If this blew my mind to look at this piece of history, what it would look like to see God, the banner that's over us. Lord, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you, Lord, for this amazing picture and for our opportunity as we approach it, as you allow us through John's recording of your vision, we too get to enter into what John saw. Behold, a throne and the one who sits on it and those praising and those encircle it. What an amazing, amazing picture. We thank you, Lord, that you bring such clarity and revelation and let it become important to us right now. It would change us, remake us into your image being constantly transformed. Thank you for this opportunity to teach. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.